And so if you have a Bible, you can open along with me a familiar place of Scripture to us that contains the unsearchable inheritance of Christ, the depth of God's wisdom that God reveals to us, the level at which we dedicate ourselves. The higher the level of our dedication, the higher the level of revelation. That you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. You, therefore, must be perfect, just as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew chapter 5, verses 45 and 48. There's someone that I would like to continue is called, called to perfection. We know that this promised commandment is the inheritance of saints of all time, and it is addressed by Christ to only to his disciples. And therefore, those who do not accept the authority of the person whom God has sent to them, they have no relation whatsoever to the inheritance of this commandment. And they will probably never have a relation to this commandment. Because to fulfill this command, we have stopped to study the purpose of God's righteousness in the heart of a person. What purpose is the righteousness of God in our heart intended to fulfill? If, of course, it does abide there. And specifically, we've been studying that the purpose of the righteousness of God in our heart, accepted by us in the broken tablets of testimony in which we, with the law, died to the law, so we could live for the one who died and rose, is comprised of us receiving the affirmation of our salvation in the new tablets that are intended to give God the basis to give us the promise, not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith, just as he had given it to Abraham and his seed. For the promise that he would be the heir of peace was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Romans chapter 4, verse 13. We have noted that the righteousness of faith in our heart is defined by the obedience of our faith to the faith of God, or our obedience to the gospel word spoken by the messenger of God in the face of a person who represents the fatherhood of God for us. The faith of God is that word that we hear, that gospel word that we hear. Faith is from hearing the word of God. Faith is not an emotion, it's not a feeling, it is information. It's the revelation that we hear. Faith does not occur from reading. Faith occurs from the anointing word that we hear. If this word is not anointed by the Holy Spirit, and it's just a human word, intellectual word, then of course it's not faith that could uh, be located in our heart. And when we place this word in our heart, then this will be the stronghold of the human mind that's going to resist true, the true anointing word. Our faith is obedience or irrefutable obedience to the faith of God and unceasing and then the unceasing readiness to fulfill what we hear and 
This includes our preparation, the preparation of our heart to hearing the Word of God, so that when our heart hears the Word of God, it could immediately fulfill the Word of God. Here, uh, a man shouldn't say, well, maybe God will tell me to do something that I'm not able to do. God will never tell you something that you're unable to do, and He's never going to ask something of you that is not His belonging. All that He asks of you is going to be His belonging that is in you. You yourself are His belonging. And therefore, the promise of the peace of God is given only to those people who have clothed themselves in the dignity of disciples of Christ and have began to pay the price for their discipleship, which has allowed them to obey the order of God through which He sends us His word in the words of the messengers of God. And therefore, the covenant of peace in the heart of a person is the result of the obedience of his faith to the faith of God in the words of the messenger of God. In a certain format, we have already studied six signs by which we should judge of whether or not we are the sons of peace. And so, we have stopped to study the seventh sign. This is by the ability to clothe our essence into the holy or the selective love of God. Because holy, the holy love of God means selective. Because holiness separates what is clean from what is unclean, what is holy from what is unholy. Holy is always pure and what is clean is not always holy. The sheep are clean, but not all are holy. Holy is that sheep that is separated for offerings to the altar. It is separated for the altar. It is separated and holy. And when this sheep is separated for an offering, then only this sheep is holy. And obviously, in order to take this sheep out of the clean sheep. It is necessary for it to coincide with the standard of holiness so that they don't have, for example, long legs, a short torso, so that their skin is, is good, so that it's a perfect sheep, so that it's a healthy one, not ill, without any blemish, without any spot, because it may be clean, but it may also have a blemish. The priest who had a blemish or a spot had no right to be a priest. He couldn't enter into God and serve God despite the fact that he was from the tribe of Levi, from the people of Aaron, because he had a blemish, he had a spot. He was not allowed to ministry. A sheep that has a spot, it may be clean, but it has a spot, it has a blemish. It can't be holy. It can't be brought onto the altar. That's why we must know what kind of love we're talking about here. We're not talking about tolerant love tolerant love that loves everybody as people like to say because people close their eyes to the fact that holiness means selective but above all else put on love which is a bond of perfection and let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which also you are called in one body and be thankful Colossians chapter 3 Verses 14 through 15. This love can be manifested only in the body of Christ, in one body, in relation to one another. We are not obligated to demonstrate this love to everyone. We should first 
demonstrate it to those who are in our service. Other services have their own pastor and let they help each other out there. Let they help each other out there because they're not even a part of our movement. They have a completely different Christ. They have completely different look or opinions on the faith of God, the love of God, the truth, that which we call truth, they call delusion, and that which they call truth, we define according to scripture as delusion. That's why we must always pay attention to this. And according to this passage, the rule of the peace of God in our hearts is possible only under one condition. If we are clothed in the selective love of God and if the selective love of God abides in our hearts, we must know the property and the character of divine love. For the selective love of God, which is the goodness of God and the atmosphere of the peace of God, it contains good, wonderful, eternal, and incomprehensible to our mind goals and works of God that are called to build unique and peaceful relationships between God and His children. Christ had loved the church and had given himself up for her so that he can cleanse her, wash her through the word so that she can be holy and unblemished before him in love. Who did he love? He had. He has loved the church. The bride is always the church. The church is not always the bride. Because the Hebrew word ecclesia, church, is the gathering of people. So it is those who are called to salvation. But the bride is chosen from these saved peoples because not all who are called will want to pay the price. Not all who are called will place the deposit of their salvation into circulation. That's why all those who are called will be headed to perdition because they are not chosen. They will Only the chosen will inherit salvation. Many are called but few are chosen. Christ had always concluded his parables with this phrase, knowing that these people who come to God but refuse to, to submit themselves to the covenant, to the word, they will be headed to perdition because they refuse to fulfill this order. That's why those churches who have members who each member sits with his own head or his own opinion, meaning that he disagrees with the word, then of course God doesn't abide in this church. They have a completely different Christ, a completely different Messiah. God abides and dwells only in the church where there are not many heads, but only one head, Christ. And this head represents only one person, the pastor of the church, only one person, the apostle. A movement. We must understand these things according to scriptures that we can understand what love is, where love is. It is in the body of Christ in which there is one head. And no one else has the right to if the head doesn't ask, if I don't listen to my organs, what's going on, and I say, quiet, we're going to church, you're not going to be in pain right now. They say, well, I don't feel good right now, my organs say. I say, that's okay, you're going to go to church. This is the head and the body. But when the majority of votes say to the pastor, um, 
we don't want you to speak about this. We don't want you to preach about this. The pastor listens. In some churches, the pastor listens to these kind of votes. Wherever there is a pastor that is chosen by democratic votes, he is led by these people in the church. He's not the leader. He's manipulated. Even saying in his structure, there is no democracy. Democracy is a lie. It is a distorted, it is a distorted form of dictatorship, where people take for themselves and don't give anything to you or give it to you so that you can live and work for them. This is what dem democracy is, so that you understand. It doesn't exist in nature. It's a lie. And democracy was implemented into the church. People say, we must participate, we must have a right to vote, each of us has our own opinions, our own heads. Yes, you have your own head, but this head is not given to you so that you could say what is good and what is evil. The head can't define what is good and what is evil inside every person. The definition of good and evil comes from the revelation of above that is given to the specific person who will, according to scripture, reveal and you will easily agree with your heart if you have the order of God in your heart. Yes, truly, this is so. Amen. And so in Scripture, the character of the selective love of God is presented by the Holy Spirit in the Gospel word of the Apostles and Prophets in the light of seven unearthly virtues. Specifically, this is virtue, knowledge, self-control, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. So all of them, they flow from one another. These are... This is one fruit of the selective love of God. These are not separate fruits, but they all are a part of the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of this holy selective love of God. And in a certain format, we've already studied the manifestation of the selective love of God in the virtues of virtue, knowledge, self-control, and patience. And we've stopped to study the virtue of the love of God in the mystery of her godliness. <coughs> Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And all of this God has done through the fruit, the fruit of the spirit of her church. It is she who had done this to show in the heavens, on earth, and in hell how wise God is. So, Apostle Paul says that she can be made known through the church to the leaders of heaven, the great wisdom of God. Despite the fact that we think that angels have some kind of knowledge that is greater than us, that's not so. This is not so. Yes, they have some other kind of knowledges, but the knowledge of God, like we have, they don't have. They receive this knowledge of God through you or through me along with you. Because each of us is a child of God. Angels aren't the children of God, they're servants. You are the children of God, and you by nature are equal to the nature of God. And when you begin to grow, then in the genetic seed that you've received, God begins to manifest himself who had created the angels. And the angels see in your character, in your actions, in your proclamations, they see the wisdom of God in this. And through you, 
they can acknowledge you. They have, they are attracted to the bread of bride of Christ so that they can know God who created them and that they've never seen before. No one has ever seen God before. The Son had revealed God and allowed Him to be seen only by those people who were born of God and who had cleansed their hearts. Blessed are those with pure hearts, you might say. Well, angels also have a pure heart. Yes, but they're servants. They have never seen God. You know, their cherubim, who is under the Ark of the Covenant, they cover they cover their faces with both wings so that they don't see the throne of grace. Because if they would see the throne of grace, they would be destroyed. They would be literally destroyed. The throne of grace is the bride of the Lamb. Here, people receive salvation. Here is where grace lives. This is the place of God. This is where He abides and dwells. We must understand these things. And with regard to this, it was necessary for us to answer four classic questions. With what characteristics does Scripture endow the godliness of God and man? What purpose is godliness called to fulfill in the relationship of God with man and man with God? What conditions are necessary to fulfill for our godliness to collaborate with the godliness of God? Because godliness is favor, His greatness, His good, His goodness his gratitude to us. And by what sign should we define that our godliness truly collaborates with the godliness of God? We've already studied the first three questions and have stopped to study the fourth question. The first sign of the fourth question is tested by our ability to be the clouds of the Most High or be led by the Holy Spirit. If we are led by the Holy Spirit, then this means that we cooperate, our godliness cooperates with the godliness of God. And of course, to be led by the Holy Spirit is possible by those saints who have come to the full measure of the stature of Christ. Infants who are swayed by winds of teaching according to the cunningness of men cannot be led by the Holy Spirit. They accept the spirit of seduction for the spirit of the Holy Spirit. Uh, one day they'll say, oh, this preacher speaks the right things, then the next day they say, the other preacher says the right things. They are swayed by winds of teachings. They don't have the Holy Spirit, although they may speak in tongues. They can also can't understand them and be led by the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is not the Lord and ruler of their life. That's why they invite the Holy Spirit as a guest. They sing, the Holy Spirit, you are the guest of heavens. When I refused being a young man in choir, when I refused to say these words, because I, they asked me, why did I refuse? I said, because I accepted him as the Lord and ruler and he is not a guest. They tell me, stop saying these things. What are you, why are you boasting of yourself? When I went, came up to the pastor and said, and he would tell me, let us invite the Holy Spirit, brothers and sisters, let us stand on our on our legs as if they can stand on someone else's legs please stand on your feet and invite the Holy Spirit as a guest so that he can be the guest of our service after service I came up to him and said well we all went to go home and you invited the Holy Spirit as a guest did you leave him in the church he, he told me stop being stop speaking blasphemy all right <laughs> so as you can see the blind can lead away only the blind. 
he who sees will not follow, follow a blind leader. The second sign is our ability to give God the basis to draw us out from the depths of hell in which he kept us and hid us from his anger. The third sign by which we must test to see that in showing the selected love of God, our godliness cooperates with the godliness of God should be by the fact that the Lord is our shepherd. A Psalm of David, Psalms 23, verses 1 through 6. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yet though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And so, we've already established and defined that according to this psalm, that evidence that God is our shepherd in this psalm of David are four different components. This is that the Lord makes us lie down in green pastures. The Lord leads us beside still waters. The Lord restores our soul. And the Lord leads us in the paths of righteousness. God cannot lead a person on the paths of righteousness against his will. If a person is not led by the Holy Spirit, he can be led in the paths of righteousness. If a person is led by his own mind or someone else's mind, and he thinks that he's being led by the Holy Spirit, this is delusion. To test and weigh ourselves on the scales of justice to see if we have these components should be done by the presence of four other components that are discovered when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We will not fear no evil because God is with us. The Lord's rod and staff comfort us. God has prepared a table before us in the presence of our enemies. And God has anointed our head with oil and our cup runs over. We've already studied the first three evidences by which we could define that the Lord is our shepherd. And we've stopped to study the next four signs that confirm the previous four signs. Four signs presented in the time of our walk through the valley of the shadow of death is called to affirm and ratify the four signs we had previously mentioned, that the Lord truly is our shepherd. The time of passage through the valley of the shadow of death is a time of taking off the old man when we consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God, calling the non-existent as existent. This is the time of walking through the valley of the shadow of death, taking off the old man with his works. The most, uh, I will remind you of the essence of the first results that was a subject of our studying during our previous service, and then we will turn to studying the next result. The first result of us walking through the valley of the shadow of death that is called to serve as affirmation that the Lord is our shepherd, shepherd will be comprised of the fact that we will fear no evil because God is with us.
The second result of us walking through the valley of the shadow of death that is called to serve as affirmation that the Lord is our shepherd will be comprised of the fact that the Lord's rod and staff will comfort us. As it is written, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. From this it follows that the rod and staff of God have a beneficial effect on the children of God. The level of the beneficial effect of the rod and staff of God is equal to the level of the severity of God that is expressed in the retribution of His anger on those who fell from His grace. Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in His goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off, and they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. Romans chapter 11, verses 20 through 23. In Hebrew, the meaning contained in the rod and staff of God discovers itself in God's care, in which He has previously provided in advance for us everything that is necessary for us to enter the unexplored inheritance of Christ, represented in the adoption of our body with the redemption of Christ. And a more broad meaning of the phrase or word rod of God is a cane, a spear, a rod, staff, help, support, hope, scepter, glory, mouth, tongue, word, faith of God, the pedigree branch, knee, tribe, family. You see, the meaning that is contained in the word rod, how many meanings it truly contains, how many shades it has. First, the rod of God as his staff is one of the figurative names and virtues of the Lord. Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and batter the brow of Moab, and destroy all the sons of Tumult. The name of God in the dignity of Rod, in all of its interpretations, speaks of God's infant and sovereign authority in the physical and spiritual dimension. From this it follows that if we are not familiar with how to cooperate with the sovereign authority of God containing the dignity of His fortress, we will never come to power over the magnified fate we are called to by God. Second, the rod of God as His staff is presented as one of the definitions that comes from the Word of God emanating from the lips of God that is called to serve as comfort and support to man. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Jeremiah, what do you now, what do you see? And I said, I see a branch of an almond tree. Then the Lord said to me, You have seen well, for I am ready to perform my word so that I could be fulfilled. You see, the branch of an almond tree represented the word of God. 
over which God was vigilant and is ready to perform. We know that He's vigilant over this word only in the temple of our body, because the temple of God is are the bodies of saints. The church, he has magnified his word in the temple of his body. And when he magnifies, when you place in your conscience that is concerned by the works of the law of God, the true teaching of Jesus Christ, the 12 teachings, then God will magnify his word in this temple of our body over all of his names. And so, um, back then, uh, the staff was made of hard wood. The end of the staff was sharpened like a spear, while the top of the staff looked like a horn facing downward, which at a distance could draw sheep falling into a hole or entangled in thorns. Or rising and ascending the mountain peaks, this horn or this staff could catch on some bush or ledge and overcome the obstacle of ascent. You see what a, a rod and a staff served as to help the sheep if they ended up somewhere to take them out and to himself ascend on the mountain with this rod and also to be protected from other animals. You know that a rod is a weapon that is better than a sword. It was higher than a man's, it was very tall, and it was taller than a man's height. When a person with a sword comes, he has to come close. But with a rod, one can destroy the enemy from a distance. Third, the rod of God as a scepter of God in the ancient days was one of the symbols of those who carried authority, defining the main deity that man worshipped. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 21. What do you think? Jacob wasn't an idolater. How come before his death he had leaned on top of his staff? Because his staff was the staff of God. If his staff would not have become the staff of God, he would not have leaned on top of it. Moses, Moses' rod became the rod of God after he had thrown it onto the ground, after he had lost his soul. The rod is our soul that is lost in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and found in him. These are our pure lips that proclaim the faith of God. He had worshipped God. Hebrews 11.21 this worship points to the fact that Jacob, on the subject of his staff, cooperated with the staff of God on the conditions of God. Considering, however, that the cobra was the main deity of Egypt that determined its royal power, the top of the golden scepter of the pharaoh was made in the shape of the head of a cobra. This was the greatest deity of Egypt at that time. It was the cobra, the snake. This was uh, the Pharaoh's staff. It was in the shape of a cobra. This was a symbol of his authority. And Moses, Moses also had uh, his staff turned into a cobra, into a snake. And he ran away from it. God said to him, take it by the tail. And then this staff becomes, or excuse me, the snake becomes the snake of God. There's a difference between a wise serpent and an, a cunning serpent. 
a wise serpent, what does he do? Why is he wise and why is he his serpent? Because his wisdom is that he closes his ear with his tail and the other he leans to the ground so that he doesn't hear the words of the seductress. He has the deafness of Christ that he doesn't see what the what those who seduce in this world say, those who distort Holy Scripture. He hears only the truth. There's a difference between a lion who um, wants to destroy and a lion who lays down and who has calmly laid down a lion from the tribe of Judah, the image of Christ. Therefore, we must always understand and see that a serpent was, a snake was created by God. And this creation is not cunning, it is actually wise by nature. But the snake from the Garden of Eden, it was a cunning serpent. He had lost wisdom. Cunningness is not the power of the mind. That's why Pharaoh had worshipped the cunning serpent and Moses worshipped the wisdom of God, the wise serpent. God had hidden his wisdom in it and now he says, this is my rod, this is the rod of God. With it you will create wonders. These are our lips, in fact, our pure lips that proclaim the faith of God. Fourth, the rod of God as a scepter of God served as a symbol of favor that gave life. And the king held out the golden scepter toward Esther. So Esther rose and stood before the king. Esther chapter 8 verse 4. The extension of the ruler's golden scepter upon someone was a manifestation of his favor toward this person. The Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 3. In Hebrew, the phrase in relation to the slain lamb, eat it like this, let your staffs be in your hands, means to appeal or stretch your staff in the direction of God. And therefore, to keep our staff in our hands while we eat Passover means to direct our favor to God and thereby express our gratitude toward Him so that He, in turn, could answer us with His gratitude. As it is written, and of his fullness we all have received in grace for grace. This is how it's correctly translated, grace for grace. Because um, the term grace upon grace is what? Grace upon grace. It means grace for grace. We offer him grace or thanksgiving. He answers us with his thanksgiving or his grace. That's why the translation that we have is correct, grace for grace, and not like some other um, translations that say grace upon grace. There are certain words in the Greek language um, that were mis misinterpreted or mistranslated. And of His fullness we have all received in grace for grace. Meaning we turned to God and then He turned to us. We demonstrated our gratitude toward Him and He gave, He demonstrated His gratitude toward us. 
And that's why God will never demonstrate his gratitude toward a person who didn't offer him his gratitude. A person must demonstrate goodness, turn his face toward him. How do you turn your face toward God? We just showed how do we turn. We must offer our tithes into the house of the Lord. How do we turn to you? How do we turn to you, Israel says? The Lord answers them and says to the prophet Malachi, bring to my house all your tithes, your tithes, and honor me and not try to receive something for this. Receive something that might be beneficial to you, but begin to honor me. Bring them to me. Fifth, the rod of God as his measuring rod was one of the instruments for measurement. There was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze. In the man's hand was a measuring rod. The appearance of bronze means that this person coincided with the standard of righteousness because he himself tested himself and he himself weighed himself on the scales of justice. And this man in Revelation is, of course, are the apostles of Christ. These are not angels. And this is an image here. In the man's hand was a measuring rod six cubits long. Six is the number of man. Six cubits long, each being a cubit and a handbreadth. Ezekiel chapter 40, verses 3 and 5. So, due to the fact that the rod was made from four to six cubits in length, it was used as a measuring rod. It measured the temple, how much it coincided with the Word of God. When the Word of when we hear the Word of God, then the Word of God measures not just myself, but you as well. Before I preach, I have measured myself and weighed myself, and then I speak to you, and I simultaneously continue to weigh myself myself along with you. And again, this rod was used as a measuring tool, as a measuring rod. Six, the name of God as his rod and his staff in the hand of man is the ability to control our lips or to control our tongue. When it is in our hands, this is the ability to control our tongue. And in order to confirm this statement that to have our rod in our hands is to control our tongue, we will pay attention to the staff of Moses and the disciples of Christ in order to know what specific role in their life was given to their rod and how did they relate and use its capabilities. First, once considering the rod of Moses, which has become the standard for our imitation, it should be borne in mind that before Moses could partake of the Passover of the Lord, God did remarkable things with regard to the rod of Moses. And second, due to the fact that the people obeyed Moses, God imputed and transformed the properties of the rod of Moses to all the rods belonging to his people. So the Lord said to him, What is in your hand? He said, A rod. And he said, Cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses fled from it. Then the Lord said to Moses, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. And he reached out his hand and caught it. The tail is the rudder of all reptiles. And again, Moses reached out his hand and caught it, and it became a rod in his hand. Exodus chapter 4, verses 2 through 4. So again, I repeat that the tail of any reptile is their rudder, which determines their direction. And therefore, in whose hands is the steering of any nature or any structure, that thing controls this nature. 
So whatever controls our rudder controls our whole nature. After this event, God told Moses to go to Egypt and take in his hand the serpent, which became a rod in his hand. And you shall take this rod in your hand, with which you shall do the signs, Exodus chapter 4, verse 17, and which Moses had done as he was told. Moses took his wife and his sons and set them on a donkey, and he returned to the land of Egypt. Donkey is the image of his body, so his wife and his sons is the fruit, is his fruit, and his wife is an image of his soul. It's an image, again, it's an image, but here it was in the literal sense. Moses took his wife, his sons, and set them on a donkey, and he returned to the land of Egypt, and Moses took the rod of God in his hand, Exodus chapter 4, verse 20. You see here, first there was a rod in Moses, then it become, um, it became the rod of God when he found out that it was actually a serpent. When God says, take it by the tail, this is the, the rudder, the wheeling apparatus, because our lips must be controlled. Our tongue must be controlled. Our lips ourselves are not uh, the wheel. Someone must control this wheel. So must we must control our lips, our tongue. And now let us turn our attention to how the same rod, which at first was human and was called human, after the events described, began to be called the rod of God. And therefore, having tasted the Passover of the Lord, without our staff in our hands, or without controlling our tongue, we will unworthily eat the Passover of the Lord. That is, we will condemn ourselves. Again, if we don't have our staff in our hands, we will condemn ourselves. When we do not, when we um, do not do this correctly, we condemn ourselves. Why? Because we incorrectly meditate upon the Word of God. To meditate upon the Word of God is to have a meek tongue. It's to control our tongue so that we do not eat and condemn ourselves. If we don't have the staff, then you unworthily eat the Passover. Because without controlling our tongue, we cannot cooperate. It's impossible to work with God, neither in freeing oneself from the curse nor in possessing an inheritance bequeathed or belonging to us in the adoption of our body through the redemption of Christ. A person who does not control his tongue loses his sovereign right and therefore he will never be able to cooperate with God and represent his interests. That's why in due time Jesus sent his disciples to share the gospel where he himself wanted to go to represent the interests of the kingdom of heaven and he gave his disciples the following commandment. He commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts. Mark chapter 6 verse 8. So they weren't supposed to take any money nor bread nor copper in their money belts nor no nor bag with which um, they just had to take a staff why did God do this so that they go only with their staff this is an image God through our clean lips will do everything for us all that he will do for us will be done through our lips Obviously, the thoughts that form, they will form in our Tarshish ships, in our mind, that is renewed by the spirit of our mind. And only then, our pure lips can preach these words. First, we must have a renewed mind, and only then, we will have pure lips. 
that are, are cleansed, that have been cleansed. Seventh, the name of God as his rod and staff is called to bring us into the pond of the covenant to purge the rebels from among us. When God leads us into the bond of the covenant, of the covenant through his rod, he will purge the rebels from among us. I will make you pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. I will purge the rebels from among you, and those who transgress against me. So against the people of God, uh, there are many rebels. I will bring them out of the country where they dwell, but they shall not enter the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord, Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 37 to 38. God had led the people of Israel out of Egypt, but they did not enter the land of Egypt, or, excuse me, the promised land. Only Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb had entered. No one else. But the fruit of these people, their sons, had come to this, their sons and daughters had, that were born to them in the wilderness, who did not groan against God, and who did not ask for the food that the others, their parents, wanted. These people moaned and groaned. You see how difficult it was for them when a person says, well, thy service is so hard for me. If I don't come to church, I'm not. The people are going to think I'm not spiritual. I must go to church. I must prove myself. When a person goes to church, not with desire, um, but when a person does go with trembling, that I'm going to go in the presence of God. I'm going to find comfort. God will show me something there in church. There, I'm going to acknowledge God further. Specifically, it's there where God um, transfers something over to one another. Here, we partake to the body of Christ. But people don't think about this. They don't meditate upon. They don't meditate over the body of Christ or about it. And of course, for Moses, this was very difficult. And God said, I can't look at them anymore. Moses said, Lord, I can't. They are crying. They're crying in their tents. He saw them crying in their tents because of how difficult it was for them. And God gave them meat. And then he began to destroy them when they began to eat this meat. But the children, they were surprised. They didn't eat this meat so that, you know... They're only their fathers ate this meat. You might say, well, how come they didn't eat it? Because for them, uh, the taste of it was, it was unpleasant to this, their smell, and it was disgusting toward them. to them. This is the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit eats only the manna, the bread of God, the word of God, that comes from the mouth of God. Therefore, for them, it was wild that their fathers, who had given birth to them, they wanted something different than manna, and they had groaned. How come God did not... How come those 20 and older were destroyed and those 20 and under were not? Because they were the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of righteousness. They had no desire to eat this food that their fathers ate. They had rejoiced in the manna each time when they had got, when they had woken up in the morning because if the sun had set, then that's it. The manna, the manna had disappeared. In the morning, before the sun rose, and when it the manna grew with the dew on the ground, they had gathered it. They had gathered, and they had either baked it or boiled it. it its taste was like uh, bread with honey, and. These, their parents said, well, we're tired of this mana. We want something spicy. We want something with herbs. The word mana, you know what it means? It means, what is this? It literally means a phrase, what is this? 
When Israel had seen manna, they with disgust looked at it and said, What is this? Moses said, This is the bread that the Lord is giving you. They said, This is bread? They had tasted it said, it's good, but we want something spicy. We want meat, we want onions, we want lentils. We only have manna in our eyes. There's nothing else. Allah and all of them had fallen in the wilderness. You see, I will make you pass under the rod and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. I will purge the rebels from among you. And those who transgress against me, I will bring them out of the country where they dwell, but they shall not enter the land of Israel. They will know then you will know that I am the Lord. Eight, the name of God as his staff is called to be one of the weapons for defense and attack. I already talked about this, how in the ancient world, um, due to the length and construction of the shepherd's staff, in the event of an attack by any beast or person on a shepherd or on his herd, such a staff could serve as a weapon for the shepherd both for defense and for attack. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 4. The wicked in our land is an image of reigning sin that lives in our body in the face of the old man with his works over which stand the organized powers of darkness. The staff of Moses as a subject of his meek tongue, thanks to which God created wonders in order to deliver his nation from Egyptian slavery and lead them into the promised land, as well as our meek tongue, which is called the staff of God. With these, God will shepherd us in order to adopt our bodies through the redemption of Christ. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your heritage, who dwell solitarily in a woodland in the midst of Carmel. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in days of the old. Micah chapter 7 verse 14. To shepherd our sheep means to shepherd our thinking in solitude with God, by which is meant the mystery of the divine darkness in which God favors to dwell. And of course, there is a big difference between the poverty and capabilities of the human rod in the subject of our unclean lips and the rod of God in the subject of our meek tongue. To be a human rod means to belong to oneself, to rely on oneself, and to depend on oneself, which means to be a slave to the flesh and thoughts. And to be the rod of God means to belong to God, to trust in God, and to depend on God, which means to have the dignity of the servant of the Lord or to be the slave of righteousness. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? Romans chapter 6, verse 16. Second, to be a human rod means to possess the properties and characteristics of a fallen cherub. And you have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge and according to the image of him who created him. 
Third, to be a human rod means to judge oneself from the position of one's human capabilities. My people ask counsel from their wooden idols, and their staff informs them, for the spirit of harlotry has caused them to stray, and they have played the harlot against their God. Hosea chapter 4, verse 12. You see how dangerous it is to say, I have my own head, so that I can understand what is good and what is evil. My people ask counsel from their wooden idols, and their staff informs them. And God calls this the spirit of harlotry that has caused them to, to stray away, and they have played the harlot against their God, and this astray from their God. But whereas to be the rod of God means to judge oneself from the position of the capabilities of God. Yeah, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Fourth, to be a human rod means to be guided and led by your lusts. And to be the rod of God means to be guided and led by the Holy Spirit. It was impossible for the human rod to do the true miracles and signs of God, because being human, he could be activated solely by the will of man. While the rod of God could be used exclusively by the will of God, and thus, and it's not when God, man wants, but when God wants, when God reveals, and thus he could represent exclusively only the properties, interests, and possibilities of God. When Moses began to call out to God, only then God said, Why are you crying out? Take the staff, hit the water, and then the water will be separated. If Moses would not have received the revelation, and what if... What would he have done if God had not told him to do so and hit the water? It would not be his rod, his God's rod, but his own rod. You must wait for a revelation of God to use the rod of God. You must have Urim and Thummim. You must have the truth in the heart and the dignity of the teaching of Jesus Christ. And you must have Urim, which is in the dignity of the Holy Spirit, who reveals the truth in the heart. When the Holy Spirit says, do this, you have this, but you can't do this according to your own. Uh, desires, but only then when God, God tells you and how he tells you. That's why a man who has cast his rod is a man who has lost his soul on the subject of his vain or sinful life inherited from his fathers, which in practice means that such a person refused to fulfill the desires of his flesh and thoughts or killed the earthly members. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So, covetousness is when a person uses the principles of faith in order to be materially rich. A person who takes a snake by the tail and the subject of the soul rejected by him receives the opportunity to control his lips or judge himself from the perspective of scripture and think of himself according to the measure of faith. Because of which he received the ability to represent the interests of God and overcome in himself any opposition to the will of God. The rod of God 
will comfort us when God measures the temple of our body, our altar and the subject of our motives, and our worship taking place in the temple of our body as far as it meets the requirements of spirit and truth. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. We already talked about how uh, because apostles have this staff, but you also have the same staff. As soon as the apostle or the person who has the powers of the fatherhood of God, as soon as he speaks, this rod is passed on, you take it into your lips and you say, let it be to me according to your word. And then this staff of the apostle becomes your staff. In his lips, it became the rod of God, and then in your lips, it becomes a rod of God. Receiving this measuring rod, you begin to measure yourselves. How closely you coincide to this given truth. Synonyms, synonyms of the word rod are also mentioned in different places of scripture, sometimes as such terms as staff, measuring rod, and scepter. In this regard, the meaning of rod in scripture is ambiguous. The place of the first resistance to the will of God that disrupts the adoption of our body through the redemption of Christ was the throne room of the Egyptian monarchy. This is where the two uh, the two rods had oppose one another, the rod of Moses and Aaron and the rod of the the other men. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and they did so, just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servant and became a serpent. And for every man threw down his rod and they became servants. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. Exodus chapter 7 verse t- verses 10 and 12. Egyptians symbolized people born again, but only carnal who are usually at different stages of development. Pharaoh, uh, you know, Egyptians, uh, they were not Gentiles. And this uncircumcised... The Gentiles had lived in the land of Canaan were uncircumcised. This uncircumcised man, this uncircumcised Gentile. Uh, Egyptians served as a place of refuge of Christ, a place of refuge for the land of Israel during hunger. So God has a certain relationship with Egypt. Pharaoh symbolized the mind of a carnal person, which all carnal people are guided by. At the initial stage of their development, carnal people, as a rule, always transfer their authority to spiritual people, as happened in the case of Pharaoh and Joseph when they have just uh, repented. And again, this is what happened in the case of Pharaoh and Joseph. But when the time of infancy ended and man did not pay the price for leaving infancy, his priorities shifted and he began to see himself as spiritual. And therefore, he began to resist the descendants of Joseph. The rods of the sorcerers symbolize the power of resistance of the wicked people and the power of their wicked thinking, which we have to meet and overcome with the power of the rod of God. Now, as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so here we see the two names of the sorcerers, not all sorcerers. Just as Moses and Aaron came, they had represented God, but here Janus and Jambres had uh, certain magician abilities and their um, staffs fell and they turned into serpents. 
Their men of corrupt minds disapproved concerning the faith, but they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all, as theirs also was. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8-9. through 9. Apostle Paul wrote about pe- these people who were in the church. Who are these people who are corrupted by their mind and ignorant in faith? And how do we need to confront and defeat them? Those corrupted by their mind are guides of sin and drunkards, consuming wine and depending on wine. The ignorant in faith are people who are inferior, incapable, unfit, perverse, unworthy, despicable, and miserable. I'm mentioning these because this is how they, uh, these, is, this is, these are the definitions that are found in the Greek language. The place of the second resistance to the will of God that disrupts the adoption of our body, the redemption of Christ, are the waters of the Nile River. So Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded us. He lifted up the rod and struck the waters that were in the river. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. Why did not Moses, but did Aaron strike the water? Because Moses was was a, was God to Aaron, and Aaron was a prophet. And everything that Moses said, Aaron did. This was the thought of God that was expressed in the word of Aaron. In scripture, the waters of a river symbolize the Holy Spirit in the movement or essence of the faith teaching, and therefore the rod of God in the hands of Aaron symbolized the movement of the Holy Spirit the movement of the river of God. He who believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, writes Apostle John. This he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus has was not yet glorified. John chapter 7, verses 38 through 39. The Nile River, in this case, which for the Egyptians was a deity and which was hit by the rod of God, symbolizes the unclean spirit speaking under the name of the Holy Spirit as well as the movement of error and false doctrine. The place of the third resistance to the will of God that disrupts the adoption of our body through the redemption of Christ were the frogs in the waters of Egypt. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your rod over the streams, over the rivers, and over the ponds, and cause frogs to come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. Exodus chapter 8, verses 5 through 6. And I saw, and again I'm going to mention one other place of scripture, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. You see, these are false teachings that come into the body of Christ. False teachings, false prophets, false apostles, false shepherds, false teachers that distort scripture, and there are many of these. Paul says, we are not so. We give scripture as it is. And here we see who the frogs are. They are spirit of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle for the great of the great day of the Almighty. The kings of the whole world. So we're talking about presidents and the kings of earthly 
governments, but we're talking about people who already understand the meaning of what it means to control their emotions. And they control their tongues, their emotions, with the power of their mind and the power of their will. They redirect their feelings and emotions there where they want. These kings decided that they have their own head, and they do this with their own strengths. We know that we know that um, athletes they um, are able to achieve a lot uh, by disciplining their mind. But here we're talking about in the body of Christ, many are called. They will become kings, but they have not become priests and they have not become prophets. In order to receive the adoption of our body with the redemption of Christ, we need to have the dignity of a king, priest, and a prophet. But they only had the dignity of kings. And this delusion had come out to them in the form of a frog. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. We're talking about these kings. And they gather them together to the place called in Hebrew, Armageddon. Revelation chapter 16, verses 13 through 16. Psalm 78, 45. He sent frogs which destroyed them. This is the teaching that a person that receives, thinking that it is from the Holy Spirit, and it will destroy man. The place of the fourth resistance to the will of God that disrupts the adoption of our body through the redemption of Christ was the lice of the earth on the boundaries of all of Egypt. So the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your rod and strike the dust of the land so that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. Exodus chapter 8, verse 16. The dust. The dust, it was struck and it became lice. In scripture, the earth in relation to a person symbolically represents the soil of his heart or the place in which the seed of the word, sprouting, is formed into a fruit corresponding to the origin of the seed. And therefore, the lice that was made from uh, the dust of the land of Egypt is actually the fruit of the seed that she took. Lice are mosquitoes of all kinds which symbolize forms of negative, frightening thoughts. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. Men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 27. Considering that our time has come to a conclusion, I will leave this uh, to be discussed and cell groups. I'm not going to return to this because we still have uh, five places of resistance of um, five places of resistance to the will of God that disrupts adoption of our body. And I tell you in this that you do. Um, diligence, great due diligence to the Lord because our service does not end here. It ends on Sunday when you leave service at cell groups and yachekas and you again uh, look at this material, study this material that I have not um, and this material that I have not uh, concluded or was unable to finish today, I ask the leaders to finish at cell groups. So let us now bend our knees, bow our heads and everyone who desires to uh, challenge challenge themselves 
I ask you to come out here to the altar of the Lord and we will pray for you. We will pray for God to demonstrate mercy upon you and to once again reestablish his covenant with you. doesn't matter if you've sinned some kind of sin. God knows during the time of your proclamation to forget your sin, to throw it to throw it into the lake of fire and to not remember it, to restore relationship, the relationship with Him, to give you a new hope. Amen. Let us pray, and the Lord may the Lord bless you. I will pray along with you with your prayers and I ask you to deeply believe that God is for you. He is not against you. He has loved you with an everlasting love. He understands your pain that sin has, has caused on you. He is sorrowful for you. Apart from man, aside from man, he who does not remember your sins does not spread them. You should not pay attention to how other people act towards you. After you have confessed your sin, 
God is faithful to his word that he has magnified in the temple of your body. He has erased your sin from his memory, and he views you as righteous in Christ Jesus before his face. Accept this by faith in your heart. Look upon it. Proclaim this with your lips. Your hands raised to the heavens. This is a sign that you are ready to receive from God what he desires to give you. Your eyes closed. This is an element of a mystery room. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, I come to you. I reveal my heart. You see my pain. You see the wounds that were placed by sin. I hate my sin. I despise the lusts of my body. I ask you, forgive me, wash me, cleanse me, heal me, take away my shame. I love you. I believe in your word. I proclaim it with my lips because it in my heart is in my heart. And right now, before heaven and hell, I want to proclaim that according to your word, I am washed, I am cleansed, I am healed, I am restored, I am justified, and I am saved. Your sins are forgiven you and your transgressions in the name of Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless you. May He look upon you with His holy face, have mercy upon you, and may He give you peace. May around you fall thousands and tens of thousands and not draw near to you. May all of the blessings of the ancient hills and mountains come upon you. May the mercy of God be blessed upon your head and upon the head of your descendants. May all of this come upon you and upon your descendants, and may it be fulfilled upon you, and let the people say, Amen. Blessed is God, who is vigilant over His word. I want to turn to those people who periodically um, share the sins of those people um, whose sins God has already has has uh, God has already forgiven. Be careful to spread these sins because when you do this, God will remember your sins. If you can't forget the sins of other people who which God has for already forgiven, and if you don't act to this person normally, God will remind you of your sins. God will remember your sins. I don't want you to perish. I don't want you to boast of your own righteousness over people who have received righteousness through their proclamation or the confession of their sins. Each of you, including me, in our time, had also confessed their sins and had received justification as a gift of grace. Be able to acknowledge this in others as well and forget what they have done and don't judge them in their outward appearance. Allow God to judge them. And now let us proclaim our unchanging manifestation. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God, our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen.